Amen. Well, good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the elders here and the primary teaching pastor, and we're just so grateful that you're here. Um, kiddos, you guys are dismissed. Uh, go have some fun at Children's Church. Um, if you're not a kid, or I mean, you can go, but if you are a, a kid, uh, thank you. Ooh, ooh, that's a good picture. That's a, that's a good one. Thank you for that. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Facebook is great. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not going to flip this around uh, for the pictures on the back. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so if you're not a kid, why don't you grab your Bibles? Hebrews 13 is where we're going to be. Uh, we have two more weeks. So this week and next week in Hebrews, <clears throat> which is just exciting. I've, have you all enjoyed going through Hebrews? Yeah, it's been so helpful to me as well. Uh, and then we're going to spend four weeks in the book of Jonah, and then it's Advent time. So no lie, I was in the shower this morning, Spotify playlist going, and guess what came on? Christmas music. And guess who danced in the shower? This guy. It was fantastic. I'm just so ready. But um, what? Christmas. Oh, I thought you were dancing in the shower. Yes, Christmas too. But before we get too far, I want to do this because um, you guys are so generous. You love our family so well. Uh, the whole past appreciation is this month, and I've felt every bit of it. But uh, I want to recognize someone too um, that, that probably doesn't get enough credit or recognition. Um, so today is my 12th year anniversary with my wife. Come here, Bree. Get up here, Bree. So, first and foremost, come here. <laughs> Don't make me make you submit in front of everybody. Just joking. Carlton, I know you'd get that. So, uh, today is our 12th year anniversary, so I want to say happy anniversary to my beautiful wife. Uh, we've been dating for like 19 years, right? Uh, I asked her out my freshman year in high school, and then she broke up with me three days later. Uh, you, you can come up and join me. She hates this. So, happy anniversary, but then also just as probably, like I said, the most underappreciated role within the church, which is the pastor's wife, all that you do to serve the church, love the church behind the scenes that no one will ever know, recognize uh, how I'm a nice person to the church because of you, how you filter all of my thoughts so that it comes out cleanly. Uh, we just want to thank you. So, would you guys help me thanking Bree for all that she does? How mad are you right now? A little bit. A little bit. All right. Well, thank you, babe. Love you. So Hebrews chapter 13, like I said, uh, and this is, I told someone earlier, and I was not joking, this is probably going to be a long one, so get ready, uh, but every week is a long one, so just get ready. Um, one of the things that has made my wife and I's marriage successful is primarily on her. Um, she just puts up with a lot and has a bunch of grace and mercy, uh, but we have a very mutual trust, right? So there is, I just can't think of an example, as I was writing this this week, cannot think of an example where uh, I just wouldn't first trust her, no matter what she says, how she acts, what she's going through. My, my first instinct for my wife is always trust. I trust you. I believe you. Whatever you say, I'm going to go with it. Even if it sounds crazy, I'll ask questions later. Uh, my, my first reaction is going to be trust. I trust you because I love you. I trust you. But, but we can even zoom out of the marriage relationship and just get into friendships. The core part of friendships is trust. If you don't trust your friend, you're not going to be friends. And there's this massive study that came out by Forbes Business about business. And you know what the number one attribute of a good boss is? Trust, right? We've all worked for bosses that we just couldn't trust and we didn't work hard for them. But the ones that we did trust, we worked really hard for. And you can just keep going down the line. What is the primary reason that uh, politicians have very low approval rates? trust. We, we can't believe anything that they say, that there's an ulterior motive, and, and so we just can't trust them. So what are the main qualities, if not the main quality, for a good leader is trust. And so what we're going to see this morning as we start to land the plane in Hebrews 13 is that a good leader is taking you to the uncomfortable places where God is at work. So a good leader is taking you to the uncomfortable places where God is at work. Now catch that word, uncomfortable. It's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be fun, but a good leader is going to push you. He's going to model for you what that looks like. So uh, we'll see two things this morning. What does it look like to trust your leaders? 
And then where is this uncomfortable place that good leadership is going to take you? So Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to read verses 7 through 19. I know it's kind of a longer passage, but stay with me. Just hermeneutically, it makes sense. There's some bookends with leadership in verse 7, and then leadership circles back around at the end of the passage. So uh, we just stretched it out a little bit. Uh, But Hebrews 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 7. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by divisive and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who devoted to them. We have an altar from from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Verse 19, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. So let's pray. Father, we just ask that uh, whatever is going on in our lives and our heart this morning, Father, you would clear that. I know we've all walked in here with some excitement, with some baggage, with some regret, with some mourning. So, Father, we just pray for this next little bit, that you would just illuminate the scriptures to our hearts and to our minds. Father, would we not leave this room the same? God, do what only you can do, which is change us, mold us, conform us into the image of your Son. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, I mentioned this a little bit last week, but just for the sake of teasing this out where we are, um, Hebrews chapter 1 through Hebrews chapter 12 all have explained who God is, why Jesus is better, why he's better than the sacrificial system, why he's better than Melchizedek, why he's better than the angels. Uh, So the author of Hebrews, who we don't really know who it is, has fought and belabored to this house church, to this small group of Christians in Rome who were facing persecution uh, to keep going, to keep pursuing, to keep loving Christ with everything they have. And because this original audience, they were Jews that have now converted into Christ. So right, so all of their Jewish family has deserted them. And they're Christians living within Rome. So now Rome is starting to, to take their property, to uh, beat them. And we know that martyrdom is coming for a lot of these Christians. So perseverance, keep going, keep going. In chapter 1 through chapter 12, the way that this was accomplished was, look how great God is. I am convinced 100% of our problems is because we have a small God theology, right? So if we had a proper theology, proper view of who God is and who we are in light of who God is, all of our problems would dissipate. I mean, it's that whole, like, my dad can beat up your dad, like, Do we know who our God is? Because if we do, if we know that he owns everything, cattle on a thousand hills, he created everything ex nihilo without, out of nothing, just spoke things into existence, then why would we fret? Why would we worry? Why would we doubt? But we we have a small view of who God is, therefore we doubt, we worry, we stress. And so the whole Hebrews chapters 1 through chapter 12 has been trying to outline, here is who God is. We cannot put the cart before the horse. And chapter 13 is now the cart. In light of all these first 12 chapters of who God is, here is how the church should live. So last week we saw five very plain exhortations in verses 1 through 6, and it was very clear, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And now we see this exhortation continuing all throughout the rest of this chapter. And the next week, Stephen will preach the benediction, kind of the closing arguments of Hebrews, and then we'll be done. So these are exhortations, these are ways that the church should live. And we're going to see straight out of the gate in verse 7 to submit to leaders. 
We must submit to our leaders when they lead you to uncomfortable places of obedience. So I'm going to read a passage, preach a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit. We good? So let's go back to verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So this exhortation moves from do this, do this, do this, to remember your leaders. And like I said earlier, there's another bookend coming of remember, listen, obey, respect your leaders. But straight out of this exhortation, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of life and imitate their faith. Now, now one of the things we have to see is some of the way that this language is used, right? So those who spoke to you, that is past tense, consider the outcome of their way of life. So a lot of scholars would agree that these uh, people, these leaders that this writer, writer, author is talking about have, have been killed, or have passed away. And so we just kind of have to look at church history and understand where martyrdom really came on the scene. And both of those could work. But regardless, these are leaders that are no longer with them. And they're saying, consider those who taught you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Now, now we see this very clearly within Paul's words. We see 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So this is what leadership looks like. As I'm following Christ, you follow me. And this is what they're saying. Remember those that went before you. Remember those that lived that way before you. And, and there's two extremes that we have to kind of understand when we talk about leadership, right? On one extreme, you have the hypocrite. Do as I say, not as I do, right? So, so be imitators of me as I'm following Christ does not fit into the bounds of hypocrisy, right? It just doesn't work. Follow me as I'm following Christ, but I'm not actually following Christ, so I'm going to tell you what to do, but I can't be an imitator. I can't model this behavior for you because I'm not actually doing it myself. And we can all think of leaders and, and people that have had authority in our life that lead in that way. But then the other extreme is over here that, I mean, they are like awesome. They check all the boxes. They do everything. But their motivation isn't actually a relationship with God. It's because they're wired that way. I mean, there's some of us in this room that, that if there's a rule, you must follow it. Anybody? I mean, you're just rule followers to the T. Thanks for your help. I love it when you guys do this. Tori was the only one that raised her hand, and that is why Tori is my uh, helper, because she helps. Because I'm, I'm the opposite, right? If there's a rule, it's meant to be broken. If there's a door that has a sign, do not enter, I've got to enter. I've got to figure out why that says that, right? So we have this leader, too, that, that might be doing everything right. Yeah, be imitators of me as I'm following Christ, but, but they're doing it from more of a legalistic mindset, from a legalistic bent. I've just got to follow the rules so that God will love me. Was that actually teaching us about the character and nature of God? No, it's, it's making them, it's minimizing God down to a bunch of rules and do's and don'ts. And so neither of those instances actually teach us and model for us who God actually is. But this leader, whoever these leaders are that they're talking about in Hebrews, do. And he's saying, remember them and follow after them, how they spoke to you. And I love this word outcome. Could it be that the word outcome would really tie into that they died well. That they died well. And, and one of the things, and you've heard me say it over and over and over again, and whoever's up here preaching, you're gonna hear this say this over and over and over again. When we consider the outcome, who's gonna pour into our lives? We, we would just implore you, and this one's for free, read a bunch of old dead guys. Read some guys that finished well. When you're talking about theology, spiritual formation, don't just go to the New York Times bestseller list and go buy whatever. No, go, go back to guys that finished well, that the outcome of their life showed that they stayed true to the core of their faith till death. That's the outcome. That's the spiritual formation that we should really look at and be gleaned by. I mean, I, this week I was watching a YouTube video. It was kind of a debate among pastors. And all of these guys on this stage were well-known authors, well-known preachers. And this video was just a few years ago. And now three out of the six that were on stage had been fired from their ministry and were no longer in ministry. So that's what I'm saying. Maybe read some of those books, but... You're never going to go wrong with an old dead guy that has finished the race well. 
So we see this straight out of the gate. In this exhortations, don't forget your leadership. Submit to good leadership. Sit under good leadership. Follow them as they follow Christ. Remember the word that they taught to you. And, and what is this word? What was it the primary message that they were teaching? That's a great question. Look with me at verse 8. Here's the word that they spoke. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That Jesus Christ was the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the message that they have spoken. This is the message that they cling to, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is why the book of Hebrews, the author here, has labored, labored to show how Christ was evident in all of creation, in all of the Old Covenant, in all of the Old Testament, that Christ was present through all of it. Right, That Christ isn't a smaller part of the Trinity. He's not less than God. He is God. That Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we see in chapter 5 that yesterday, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. We see in chapter 4 that today, Jesus is a high priest before the Father who is able to sympathize with our weakness and then we see in verse, or chapter 7 that forever Jesus is always lives to make intercession for us. That he's seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us as we pray. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now why does this matter for the church in, this, in Rome? Why is this message, why was this phrasing tied up? Why did this speak so much to them? Because yesterday, they were all converted and saved miraculously into Christ. Yesterday, Christ died for them. He was resurrected on the third day. And these Jews that had grown up historically Jewish had left their Jewish traditions behind and ran after Christ. But today, persecution is looming. But today, they don't know if they can go out in public without being beaten. Today, they don't, they don't know that their house is not going to be overtaken by Rome. Today, they don't know if they're going to have any friends outside of this small house church. And their forever is impending death. Martyrdom is coming their way. So the author is very particular here in how he writes this, that the same Jesus that saved you is the same Jesus that's going to sustain you, is the same Jesus that's going to glorify you in heaven with his Father. This is the message of the gospel that all of us would do well to remember. But, man, we've seen throughout this entire book their faith is fading their faith is failing them because of the persecution, because of what's going on in them. Their faith is falling away. And we see this throughout Scripture. If this has happened to you, it's happened to me. Praise God, we're in good company. Because one of the most famous ones is John the Baptist. And when you think about John the Baptist, right, I mean, he was ferociously preaching the gospel. I mean, when Mary walked into the room with Elizabeth, both pregnant, John the Baptist flipped out in the womb because he was that close to Jesus. So John the Baptist is born, he's ferociously preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He points to Jesus, that is Jesus, he's here. The kingdom is here. And then what happens to John the Baptist? He gets thrown into prison, death is knocking at his door, and so he sends messengers to Jesus. And what does he say? I mean, this is, uh, this is not working out well for me. Uh, are, are you really the Christ or are you going to send someone else? So even John the Baptist, so ferociously preaching the gospel, when he gets into a hard spot of persecution, even his faith starts to doubt. So, so we see this as the uncertainty comes in our lives. And I'll say this pastorally over and over and over and over and over again. You're either coming into a hard season or you're going out of a hard season. But, but we're all there. Or you're in one right now. You're either coming in or going out of a hard season. Where your faith is going to be tested. Where suffering is going to be felt. Where hardship is going to be felt. And we have to memorize that Jesus Christ was the same when he saved us. He's the same right now as he's sustaining us. And he's going to glorify us with the, with the Father in heaven. So the church in Rome should not allow their current situation to change how it is that they view God. Because God does not change. He's not changed based on circumstances or what's going on in the world. And, and this big phrase, this theological phrase, is called the immutability of God. That God does not, cannot, will not change. Malachi 3.6 puts it this way. 
But you are the same, and your years have no end. Psalm 33, 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And Philippians 1, 6, one that I'm sure a lot of us have memorized in VBS. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So look towards the leaders. Look towards those that you want to imitate, those that are preaching that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and follow after them. But look with me at verse 9. 9 through 13 is where things start to get a little uh, wonky, if you will. That's a theological term for strange. Wonky. Look it up in the Greek. It's there. Verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have, verse 10, we have an altar for those who serve the tent, have no right to eat. Now we see this, and just straight out of the gate, we, we have to understand this, because I think I think because we live in the Bible Belt, because we know our Bibles, because we don't have our filters and our guards on as much as we should. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. That can happen to all of us at any time, right? And, and even within the church, uh, there's this idea of pragmatism, right? So, so whatever's successful must be most biblical, Right, So the church that grows the fastest, the thing that works the best, let's all do that. Let's follow that because if it works, what's wrong with it? But that's the wrong question to ask is, is it biblical? Is it biblical? That's the question to ask. So not just follow down this line of, well, if it works, let's do it. Because that's a, that's a strange teaching that we should not necessarily follow. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but that's not the only filter that we should run things through. So, so we all have to be aware, we all have to have our guards on, that we can be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Now, it's a little unclear on what this diverse and strange teaching is, but through some context and some uh, other scholars that are way smarter than me, here's what most people believe. They believe that someone has come into the church of Rome and they're leading them back to the dietary laws of the Old Covenant. So they were Christians, they were following after Christ, but to be a super Christian, if you will, you follow Christ, but you also follow all the dietary laws that were set in the Old Testament. That you also don't eat like the Gentiles, you don't eat like Rome, you only eat like uh, the old Jewish customs that they would. And we see this happen with Peter, uh, where he gets rebuked for falling into this trap. So, so a lot of people would think that that's what's happening. And he's, the author is simply saying, if, if you fall back into that, then you're no longer a Christian. If you fall back into the ways that it's Christ plus the law, then, then you're not actually a Christ follower. And that's what he means in verse 10. For we have an altar for which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The altar, which is Christ Jesus. So if you're following Jesus plus this, guess what? You're not following Jesus. Because it's through Christ alone. That's the altar. That's the only place you can eat. Now here's where things start to get interesting. We have to, we have to marry the two. That's why I would start and end with leadership because verses 11 through 13 is really where the test of leadership starts to come. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest of, as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, I'll just be honest with you. The first time I read this, I'm like, what in the world is he talking about? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever, and we're burning cows outside the camp? Like, what? So, so we have to go back to the context, right? This is in Leviticus, what would happen when the sin would be atoned for, when the sacrifice of the animal would take place, they would sprinkle the sin uh, on the Holy of Holies for the forgiveness of sin. Well, what do you do with this carcass of the animal that you've just killed? Well, you would drag it outside the camp and you would burn it. You would get rid of it. So outside the camp in this sentence is a very literal sense. The, the, the cow or the, whatever animal it was had to be drugged outside the camp and then it was disposed of. And he takes this idea because these are Jewish Christians that are sliding back into their Jewish traditions of the law. He takes this as an illustration and he uses this to tie into Jesus. Verse 12. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So just as the blood of the animal was sacrificed for the atonement of sin and then it was taken outside the camp to be destroyed, Jesus was taken, if you remember the story, he was taken to Golgotha outside of the camp, outside of Jerusalem, and he was murdered there on the cross. And after that, he was put into the tomb, which again was outside the walls of Jerusalem. So this author is saying, remember whole, the whole animal sacrifice, you took it outside? Well, that's also what happened to our King Jesus, who suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through the blood. And then he ties into 13, and this is where things start to get really interesting. Therefore, because the cow was used for atonement, put outside the camp, just because Jesus died, suffered, was murdered outside Jerusalem, outside the walls. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, th- this, this moment for the original audience would make their heart drop. Because this entire letter, I mean, you've got to think this was a sermon for them. And what they're looking for is hope. What they're looking for is to be spared. What they're looking for is Christ come save us or else we're going to go back to our Jewish laws. Life was better the way it was before because now our Jewish family hates us. Rome hates us. If you don't do something for us, we're out. And here's what the preacher just said. You're out. Death is coming. If you're going to follow Christ, you must pick up yourself, go outside the camp, and fall under the reproach that Jesus had. And they were all too familiar with what that meant. Murder. Martyrdom. Your life is over. If you're going to follow Christ, you must bear the reproach he endured. Go outside. Get out of this small little bubble of this house church. Get outside of the walls. Go into Rome and be public for your faith. Is that going to have you killed? Yep. I mean, there's no mincings of words here. We must go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. If Christ was not spared, sorry, church in Rome, you're not going to be spared. But listen, That's why chapters 1 through 12 is telling you that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than the old covenant. He's better than life. That's what Paul talks about. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Get outside of the camp and get to the reproach that Jesus endured. We cannot miss the weight of this. Now, if you have your Bibles, flip back with me to Luke chapter 14. Again, longer passage. I want you to see this with your own eyes because I'm not making this up. I mean, please hear me. This is why we teach expositionally here. Because this is not a popular verse that I would just pick on my own. Follow Christ, you might die. Right? I mean, this is just the gospel. And Jesus told us about this. This is not some new idea. We can go back to Luke chapter 14. And Jesus is simple, clear, concise on what he's asking us to do as Christ followers. Luke 14, we're going to pick it up in verse 25, and this one will be on the screen as well. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, the man began to build and was not able to finish? Or what king goes out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, if you're anything like me, 
and, and I'm not knocking this, this is just a reality. Well, I'm, maybe I'm knocking it. What happened for us growing up in the Bible Belt was, do you want to go to hell? No? Say this prayer. Jesus is going to make everything better. Jesus is going to make everything perfect. If you, don't, if, if you want to go to the bad place, then keep living your life. But if you want everything to get better, say this prayer. Um, how would that paradigm fit into Luke 14? Sit down and consider the cost. Because what Christ is asking us is everything. When we talk about submitting to Jesus as Lord, now that word doesn't get used a lot in our culture, so it's foreign to us, but that is everything. That is not like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to submit to you as Lord, but I'm still going to have some of my own preferences, some of my own things. No, that, that is everything. If you get out of the will of the Lord, you get murdered. Your life gets taken care of. So when we submit to Christ as King, as Christ as Lord, that's all of our preferences, all of our will, all our desires are gone. We're submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Do we consider the cost? Do we consider what it looks like? And for the church in Hebrews, in this moment, they're having to sit down and consider. They're having to sit down and consider what their life is going to be. Are they going to continue to follow Christ even though it's going to cost them everything? Here's what Jesus is saying. Follow me. It's, it's going to cost you. Here's what he's saying to the house church in Rome. You must, if you're going to be my disciple, you must get outside of your camp and face the suffering and persecution that's coming your way. You must. Must. Now again, my fear in all of this is I don't want this to come across legalistic. Go back and listen to any of the sermons, chapters 1 through chapter 12, as we've over and over preached the goodness of who our God is. And now in light of the first 12 chapters, here we are. What then do we do? Now, now can we just be completely honest with one another? I, I just, maybe in my lifetime, I don't see it, but crazier things have happened. You're, you're not going to die for your faith. So what, what is this camp here for us? What does this mean for us? How do we get out of our camp? Well, the first I would say is get outside of yourself. I mean, can we just all admit that we are selfish? That we want what we want, how we want it, when we want it, that we want our preferences, we want this, we want that. I mean, again, let's just real talk. Can we have some real talk? Next time, listen to someone how they pick what a church they attend. It's never about how much God is glorified. It's never how true the worship is, how they handle God's word. It's all preferences. Well, they have good coffee. Well, things are just really great there. It meets my needs. I mean, we've subconsciously taken this into the realm of the church. So if it's happening here, of course it's happening everywhere else. So how do we get outside of our camp? First and foremost, we have to get outside of our, ourselves. And then secondly, how do we get outside of our camp literally here? How do we make sure that this, this body of believers, that we come worship together, we glorify God together, we study God's word together, doesn't become a clique? Doesn't become something that isn't inclusive for all that are seeking, for all that are hungry? So we had first get outside of our own preferences, our own selfish desires, and then first we have to make sure we get outside of this, that how many churches do we know have turned so insular that you couldn't get in even if you wanted to? That we have to get outside ourselves, to get outside of our camp. Now how do we do this? What does this actually tangibly look like for us? Verse 14. I mean, this guy, this, it's, it's a sermon. I love, love preaching through Hebrews because it just flows so well. Verse 14. For we have no lasting city. Did y'all catch that? The, the city that you're living in right now, in Rome, is going to fall. Your city will not last, but we seek the city that is to come. Verse 15. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share with others what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the text gives us three super practical ways to get outside of our camp. First, to seek the city that is to come. 
to seek the city that is to come. And that's been a refrain for us as we've been living through or working through the book of Hebrews, that this is not our home, that this is not it, that as the author of Ecclesiastes would say, we have to get our eyes over this, over the sun to where true life is found. How many decisions do we make today that have no bearing on what happens in eternity? How, many, how do we handle our finances? How do we handle our time? How do we handle having kids? How do we handle all of these conversations that literally have no bearing for eternity? It's just now, my preference is now. Everything we have is going to get burned or sold in yard sale. I mean, you ever think about that? The things that we work so hard for is gone. So, so do we make decisions? Do we consider who we spend time with, who we don't spend time with, how many kids we have, how do we foster, how do we adopt? Do we consider any of these parameters here for the sake of the gospel to put our time, energy, resources into things that are eternal, not things that are temporary? So the first practical way is first seek the city that is to come. We see this clearly within Revelations 21 and 22. Second, offer up sacrifices pleasing to God. So first, we consider we live in light of eternity. Second, we offer sacrifices of praises to God. I promise you this is going to be the last time I have you flip. Maybe I might break that promise. But I think this is going to be the last time I have you flip. But I want us to read this together. First Chronicles 16. If you have your Bibles, go Old Testament. If not, it's going to be on the screen. First Chronicles 16. And, and can I just say this real quick as you're flipping uh, there is zero shame. I love the fact that we have Bibles. We hand out Bibles. If you don't own one, let us give you one. There's no shame to go to the table of contents to find where these passages are and then go back. If you feel like judged because you do that, please let me know. I haven't gotten a fight in a while. I would love to take out that person that is judging you for studying your scriptures. It, it would just be over. I mean, just throat punch, they fall down, and then you're still in your table of contents, and then you can find First Chronicles 16 and keep going. I'm just kidding, I wouldn't throw a punch. That's for cowards. I'd break your nose. Man, I digress, I'm sorry. First Chronicles 16, I think this will be on the, the screen as well. Now just listen to this. Just listen to how worshipful and praiseful this is. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord to the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in splendor and holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nation, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar, all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing and joy before the Lord as before he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Amen and amen. This is our God that we serve. This is what it means to worship, to sac a sacrifice of praise to who God is. Uh, th there's a book that we have over here in the book nook that talks about praying the Bible. I would highly encourage you to go grab it. Are they free? Do we have any more? They're free, all right? So there's going to be a mad rush over here to grab this book real quick when we finish. Because what it teaches us to do is to take passages like this and use it as prayers. Use it as adoration to who God is. How do we worship him if we've not been trained? If there's no music, will you go to the scriptures? Because the scriptures give us so much to worship and praise him. So focus on eternity, not the things in front of you. Second, offer up sacrifices of praise to God. And then third, offer sacrifices of good deeds. If Christ is in us, then those around us must see it. If Christ has really changed the way that we live, it should be apparent to those that are around us. First John 3 puts it this way. But if anyone has the world's good 
excuse me, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So as we see those around us suffering, struggling, let's be good. Because of how good Christ has been to us, let's be good. Let's serve. Now, I just want to put a real quick pause right here. You guys do this so well. I mean, seriously, we can always get better, but you guys do this so well. I've not seen a church rally around uh, people like I have this church. I'm just so proud of you on that one. But, but let us continue. Let us continue. But here, here's the key word. Can I, can I bring, I complimented you, now I'm going to say something really hard. Did y'all catch the word sacrifice? Sacrifice of praise, sacrifice of good deeds. Sacrifice implies that it's going to cost you something that is going to be hard. Sacrifices aren't easy. I mean, I'll just, I'll just be straight with you, and, and you can fire me for this if you want to. Every month when our check goes out to tithe, it hurts. And I thought one day, like, oh, I just want to be a cheerful giver, and I'm going to delight giving to the church. I still hadn't got there yet. That good deed of tithing, of giving to the church every single month still hurts. And if I dwell on it, I think about all the things I could spend that money on. So there's going to be a sacrifice of good deeds. There's going to be a sacrifice of praise. It's, it's going to be hard to think, focus on the things that are above, not the things that are temporary. But this is what it looks like for us to get outside of our camp Focus on eternity, sacrifice worship and deeds. That's how we move outside the camp. Now, this is where it starts to come back to leadership. This is where leadership matters. Look with me at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. So now we get to see a little bit. Why, why is the author here plugging, obey your leaders, respect your leaders, submit to your leaders? Because the leaders are going to ask them to be, do really, really hard things. The leaders are going to ask them to get outside of their comfort zone, to get outside of their camp where death is knocking on the door. That's why he's pushing this. You, you've got to listen to your leaders, church. But aren't we going to die because of it? Y yes, but, but you've got to listen to your leaders. You've got to trust that your leaders are listening to me and they're feeding you. You've got to listen to it. But, but we're going to die. Y yes, but listen to your leaders. Submit to them. Follow them. This is why the author of Hebrews is just nailing this point down. Listen and obey. Now, now there's two. Let me just kind of give... Two maybe clarifications. One, this isn't some blanket submission to authority, right? Scripture gives us very clear commands of the authorities that we should submit to. Titus is very clear on it. First Timothy is very clear on it. Uh, when you join the branch, there's a covenant in there that the elders make to the church that if we break any of those, you feel free to bring them to us and we will dismiss ourselves if we're not walking in the way and the authority and leadership that we should. Because an unqualified just blanket of an obedience would look like drinking Kool-Aid, honestly. Uh, there's an age gap here. So there was a cult, right, that they drank Kool-Aid, everyone died. Is everyone familiar with that? Okay, so that, no? I'm sure there's a Netflix documentary on it. Go watch it. Um, so, so that's this kind of blind cultish, like, well, the leader says it, we have to do it. And that ends up with all of these people dead for no reason. So, so Scripture has given us very clear parameters here on what it looks like. And here's the main important one. If your leader is following Christ, follow them. If your leader is following Christ, follow them. If they're not, don't follow them. Now, here's the other kind of warning. Uh, I don't like this part of the Scriptures. It feels very self-glorifying. It feels very like, I'm going to tell you how hard my job is. Like, that, that's what this part feels like, right? Like, this feels very authoritative for me. I'm about to give you 10 reasons why you must submit to me now. So go ahead and get your checkbooks out, and let's get this going. Right? That, that's what this feels like, and I don't, I don't want it to feel that way. But there, there's two things that were not lost on me in the preparation for the sermon. One, what month it is, right? 
So this is pastor appreciation. So, so why not talk about what's, and, and we picked this text, oh gosh, Dylan, what, a year and a half ago? Right, so like this isn't some timed like attack on y'all should buy me a jet. Like th- that's not what this is. The other side of this idea is who else can talk about the struggles of pastoral ministry other than a pastor, right? So we can pontificate and we can, we can kind of talk about it, but, but who can give you firsthand behind the curtain ideas of pastoral ministry and, and the, the woes of leadership apart from me or the other elder? So, so that's kind of what we're doing here. Just real briefly, why are the reasons, and we see this very clearly, 17 through 19, that this author, that this preacher includes this, First, we see that leading a church is just a tiresome job. It's just a tiresome job. So, so the caveat, obey, submit, be joyful, and pray. That is your responsibility as the church, to submit to the leadership, obey, submit, be joyful, and pray. And then, like I said, sorry, I jumped ahead of myself, the reasons that he outlines for them. First, yeah, it's a very tiresome job. So we see in the text that they're keeping watch over your souls. And this literally implies that they're staying up at night. I mean, think about the sheep and the shepherds, right? That the shepherd has to stay up at night overlooking the entire flock to make sure lions and tigers and bears. There we go. So y'all say, oh my, but you don't say amen. amen. Thank you. All right, so, so they have to stay up at night to watch to make sure that, that people and animals don't come in to harm the sheep. This is what this is implying. Late nights, it is a tiresome, burdensome job. I mean, just one of the things, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but, but the elders here, I mean, we're, we're literally on call 24-7, always. There's always something going on. There's always some form of crisis. There's always something we should be praying, every situation that we should be checking on. I mean, gosh, right before, I mean, I was sitting in the sound, sound booth uh, an hour ago and just got the text that we have a good family friend that passed away from COVID. Who's probably going to preach that funeral this week? Who's going to be tempted to cancel my anniversary trip to go to preach this funeral? And obviously, Brie and I have to talk about it. But, but that's the kind of, y'all aren't getting that text this week. Or, or ever. I mean, just the idea that when my phone rings, there's a little bit of my pit that just drops. Because typically, when I get a phone call from one of you, it's bad. Right? But, but that's not the situation that most of us walk in. So leading a church is tiresome because we're constantly worrying, we're constantly thinking, we're constantly praying about the people that God has put over us. The second thing that this text points out that we will have to give an account. So, so when you guys get to glory, right? I mean, you walk in, it's going to be this magnificent, enjoyable, worshipful experience. You're finally in the presence of God. Everything's going to be made right in the world. I'm going to be in the corner peeing my pants. Because what I'm about to do is walk in front of the King of Kings and have to give an account for every way that I shepherded and led you guys the entire time I was here. So while you're singing and dancing and rejoicing, I'm trying to find another pair of pants. That's what's happening for me when I get to eternity, because James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for we know that who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So that's what's coming for those that you're submitting into authority. Number three, it's easier to shepherd happy sheep than groaners. We see this very clearly um, at the end of verse 17, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. It'd be no advantage to you. So when we're calling you to obedience and to hard things, the groaning is just sideways energy. It's just hard. The fact of leadership, it's just a pain. Because there's always something, there's always some excuse, there's always some hurt feeling, there's always something that's going on that just complicates things. And I mean, if you want an example of this, just go read Exodus, right? Just go read how Moses leads these people and they're constantly complaining. I mean, you've got manna falling from heaven, I'm tired of bread, right? You cross across the Red Sea, right? I mean, just this miraculous thing happens. And then three days later, can we just go back? Like things are just easier back over there. And Moses, I mean, can I just, all cards on the table from a leadership perspective, I kind of feel bad for Moses, right? Like, he hits a rock out of anger and then gets cursed and doesn't get to go in the promised land. I would have done a whole lot worse if I was in Moses' shoes. 
just dealing with complaining people for all that time. Don't be a groaner. We're trying to do our best. The leaders at the branch, please look at me. We're going to fail you. We're going to drop the ball. We're going to forget about something. We're going to fall apart on something. We're not going to please you everything. If you have, I used to say back in the day, maybe I should bring it back. If, you have not, if we have not let you down at the branch yet, just come back next week because I'm sure it's coming. But, but we're trying our hardest. And if there needs to be a rebuke there, please do that, but do it with love. And lastly, we see this. We need all the help and prayer that we can get. There's an uh, exhortation in there to pray for your leaders, and, and we need that. Like, can, I, can I just read some statistics and kind of mingle in some of my own personal stories? Is that okay? And then I promise we're almost done because I know we're, we're going late. Uh, here, here's one tangible way. Can, I mean, just all cards on the table, you can pray with me. And I'm not trying to creep you out. I don't even know how I feel about this, but here it is. If you could pray for your, whoever's preaching on Saturday night, that would be incredibly beneficial. Because I have a group of guys that have started praying for me on Saturday night, because here's why. Uh, my, my Saturday night routine in my house always looks the same. We put the kids to bed. I put a pot of coffee on. Um, Bree, I kind of like hang out with her for a few minutes. She goes and does laundry or watches Ted Lasso or something. And then it's just me in the den reading, praying, making some tweaks to the sermon. Uh, some weeks writing the sermon, don't judge me. And, and that's just my sermon time. But here's what happens on some Saturday nights. And I'm, I, I even hesitate sharing this, but it's just real talk. After everyone goes to bed... Um, I see things. This is so weird. I can't believe I'm telling you this. Constantly out of the corner of my eye, I see things on our back patio. Things will run by. Anything to distract me. There's, there's one where I was in my bedroom and uh, I heard, if you've been to my house, we've kind of got like this kitchen island thing. I heard something running around the kitchen island at about one o'clock in the morning. And I'm going, what punk kid is out of bed running around, club hopping in our den, waking up everyone else. Walk in there, nobody. Went and checked on all of our kids, fast asleep. I don't know how to explain this other than spiritual warfare on Saturday nights trying to keep me and distracting me from finishing my sermon for the flock on Sunday mornings. I mean, the things that happen within my house on Saturday nights, I, I, I can't explain other ways. So, pray for me or any of our speakers or preachers on Saturday nights as we're praying and trying to finish up the word for the flock. That would be incredibly helpful. Now, now I'm just going to read a couple other statistics. Now, who knows statistics? Mark Twain has a quote about statistics. You can Google it. But here's just a few that I thought were just highlights, maybe some of the situations of why we're desperate for the prayers to take place. The rate of depression is double in pastors than the average population. 72% of pastors report working up to 75 hours a week. 84% of pastors feel like they're on call 24-7. 80% believe pastoral ministry has negative affected, negatively affected their family. And many pastors' kids do not attend church now because of what their church has done to their parents. And you guys, if you've been around church, you understand the idea of a PK. And you probably all can think of a couple pastor's kids that have gone rogue from their faith. That's there. I mean, gosh, Abraham Piper, massive on TikTok right now, this deconstruction grown up under John Piper. 65% of pastors feel like their family lives in a glass house. 23% of pastors report being distant from their family. 78% uh, of pastors report having their vacation and personal time interrupted with ministry duties or expectations. I can, I can tell you story after story after story after story of examples like that one. And, and we can just keep going. 90% of pastors reported the ministry was completely different than what they thought it would be when they entered into the ministry. 75% of pastors report significantly stress-related crises at least once a month in their ministry. 80% of pastors and 84% of their spouses have felt unqualified and discouraged as a role of a pastor at least once or more times in their ministry. That to me is low because my fear every single week is that y'all are going to find out that I'm a fraud. I don't actually know what I'm doing every single week. And, and we could keep going. The profession of pastor is near the bottom of a survey of the most respected professions just above car salesmen. And one out of every 10 pastors will actually retire as a pastor. 
10% that start will finish as a pastor. Now, I'm not telling you this to woe is me, go get that Gulf Stream, send me on a plane, or some. I'm, please hear me, that's not what I'm saying. But when we look at the text, that's the only reason I'm saying any of this. When we look at the text, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be no advantage of you. I'm, I'm just trying to paint a picture of what pastoral ministry looks like and the fight and the burden that is pastoral ministry, but at the same time the joy and the delight that is. I mean, listen, I'll just be candid with you guys. I hang out with a bunch of pastors. I listen to pastors complain and gripe about their congregations all the time, and I don't hardly ever complain or gripe about you guys at all. If there's one thing that I probably complain and gripe about, it's this puke yellow on the wall. That's what I complain about. God, would you give us a building? That's probably it. But you as a congregation have made it so easy to pastor. I ferociously love you desperate for God to lead you into incredibly hard seasons so that he can become more present in your life, for obedience to grow in you. But you need to know what's happening for the pastoral elders here. And then we end verse 18. Pray for us. Pray for us so that we would have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So pray for us. As we're trying to lead you to uncomfortable places where God's at work, would you pray for us? Would you think for us? Would you every now and then just shoot a text to my wife to say, hey, thanks for all that you do for the church. Would you encourage the elders, Greg, Stephen, Rob, their wives, for all that they do, the deacons that are here, the leaders that are here? I mean, do you guys know that Almost none of them are paid. They're all doing this volunteer just for the sake of the gospel. Encourage them, support them, love on them. I, I just, I love this because I feel this. This is what C.H. Spurgeon says. My people, talking to this congregation, my people, shall I ever lose your prayers? Will ye ever cease your supplication? Will ye then ever cease to pray? I fear ye, I might have to start working ye in my sermons. I fear ye have not uttered so many prayers this morning as ye should have done. So he's telling his congregation, I'm afraid you haven't prayed for me as much as you should have. I fear there has not been so much earnest devotion as might have been poured forth. For my own part, I have not felt the wondrous power I sometime experience. So Spurgeon is saying, if you want fire in the pulpit, pray for me. If you want the church to grow and to flourish, pray for the elders. Because I know a lot of us college students, people are graduating. I'm looking at, I mean, Corey right now is going to Knoxville. No, it's a good thing. You're graduating, or Jen's graduating, you're moving away. This isn't just for the branch. Whatever church you're a part of for the rest of your life, I want you to be the best church members possible. Constantly praying, constantly encouraging, constantly lifting up your staff and your elders that oversee you because a good leader is taking you to the uncomfortable places where God is at work. How? By encouraging you to focus on eternity and sacrifice through worship and deeds. That's how we move outside the camp where God has called us. Is it going to be uncomfortable? Yes. Has Christ called us to this? Yes. So we must go. So as the elders here, as the leaders of this church, whatever church you're a part of in the future, remember that, that they're just desperately trying to get you closer to the throne of grace. And there might be decisions that have to be made and hardship that has to take place, but respect and obey and pray for your elders because they're going to have to answer for that, not you. Amen? So I'll, I'll end with this, 2 Timothy 2.3. Share in sufferings as good soldiers of Christ Jesus. As we work to bust out of this camp, bust out of the selfishness that's within us, bust into the Galatia and the world for the sake of the gospel, let us share in sufferings because we are soldiers of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and the clarity that's within it. I thank you for not setting false expectations for us. That you don't promise us that this life is going to be easy. You don't promise us that everything's going to work out perfectly. You promise us that suffering's going to take place. You promise us that hardships are going to happen. 
You promise us that it's going to get difficult. You've called us to count the cost, to get outside the camp, to submit to our leaders that are trying their best to lead us there. So, Father, we just pray that we would. God, would you give us the courage to step out? Would you give us the boldness to pursue you no matter what? Father, we're grateful for where we live and the place that you've put us. But King Jesus, will we not be so comfortable that we don't make any big strides for the gospel in our lifetime? God, would Dahlonega not be the same in five years that it is now? Would North Georgia not be the same in five years that it is now? Let us get outside of the camp. Let us get outside of ourselves and be witnesses for you through praise and worship, through the sacrifices of deeds, by living focused on eternity, would we follow you into the hard waters? Would we be obedient to what you're calling us to do? And would we submit and respect the leaders that are doing their best to get us there? Just thank you for you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you promise us that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. As we're going into uncharted territories, Father, you would never leave us nor forsake us. That you're worth it. Everything pales in comparison to the goodness of you. It's in your name that we pray.